Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow was up 372 points today, continuing the bear market rally. In fact, this is the best start for a year in almost 30 years, I think 28 years to be exact. And I think it is the seventh best start ever for the S&P 500. Now, I think the other six starts that were better, three of those uh, happened during uh, rather dubious circumstances, two Uh, occurred during the Great Depression, and one of them happened in 1987, and we all know how that year ended up. So sometimes getting off to a good start doesn't necessarily mean that the year is going to finish strong or that the year itself is going to be a prosperous one for the market. Again, I think the main reason that the market is so strong early this year is A, because of the sharp decline that we had at the end of last year, and because the Federal Reserve came in to save the market uh, precisely the way that I had been forecasting it would for many, many years. But of course, we had a lot of news today that was supposedly good news, which provided the extra catalyst for the market. The question, of course, is how many times can the market rally on the same good news? One of the pieces of good news was the fact that it looks like maybe there is some kind of compromise 
on uh, the border that will avert a second government shutdown. And that is supposedly good news. And of course, we've been having uh, this type of good news over and over again. Also, on the trade front, there were some rumors that the negotiations were going well. I mean, some of these rumors started, of course, by Trump. Uh, and um, so when the market hears that, and also since the negotiations are supposedly going well, they are going to probably be extending the deadline that was coming up later in the month. Uh, of course, if the negotiations really were going great, they wouldn't have to extend the deadline. They would have a resolution. So again, this is more uh, just set, uh, you know, saying something to be positive to help the markets. But you know, as I said before, the worst thing for the markets is going to be when we actually have a trade deal, whatever it's going to be, because then the market can't keep biting on the same bait. Oh, things are going well. Oh, we're going to avert making it worse. We're going to extend the deadlines and they can keep generating the markets or the rallies as the market keeps buying into this anticipation of the good news. But once we realize the news, good, bad or different, the market will sell. Maybe the only uh, new piece of good news was the Senate Intelligence Committee Um, coming out and saying that they were not able to find any evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. I don't think anybody really believed that there was much evidence, uh, much ado about nothing. But I guess the fact that Trump won't, you know, have to be impeached based on this, even though uh, conviction of impeachment was never going to happen, no matter what uh, the, uh, the intelligence committee may have may have found. But I suppose that's something new that the market could have rallied on. But of course, all of this misses the point that the real problems for the U.S. stock market have nothing to do with any of this. The real problem is that the market is substantially overvalued based on uh, massive amounts of artificial stimulus. We are late in an economic uh, cycle that has been driven entirely Uh, by monetary stimulus. The stimulus is wearing off. Rates have already risen to the point where the patient could no longer survive on this diminished uh, amount of uh, monetary heroin. So we are already rolling over. The economy is uh, going into recession. Uh, Earnings are not going to meet their lofty estimates. So all of this is a bunch of noise. And of course, people forget that the markets went into bear markets last quarter. And the odds that the bear market is over, I believe, are relatively slim. The odds that the longest bull market in U.S. history will be followed by the shortest bear market in U.S. history also seem to me to be very slim. So there is a lot for the markets to worry about, not the least of which is the political uh, tornado that is developing that I think will hit in 2020 If we end up in a recession, which is still my forecast, that we will be in recession before voters, uh, you know, go to the polls in November of 2020. And I think we will be in a bear market or we are in a bear market. In fact, I think stocks will be lower when uh, voters go to potentially reelect Trump. The markets will be lower than where they were when he was initially elected. And since Trump has hung his presidency on the fortunes of the stock market, if those fortunes are no longer there, it'll be hard to sell uh, the electorate on on four more years. What is going to be a lot more appealing to a lot of people is going to be socialism.
Which brings me to the standard bearer for socialism in America. It's no longer Bernie Sanders. It is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC, or on this podcast, the bartender. The bartender is the new face of the Democratic Party, and that is going to be a big problem for a lot of Democrats, not necessarily in the primary if they support AOC, but in the general election, barring a massive economic collapse, the uh, supporting the bartender is basically now the litmus test in the Democratic Party in order to shore up your support from the left fringe, which is now gotten a lot larger. And in fact, the fringe of the Democratic Party may now be the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And that is why uh, so many people, particularly white men, I pointed out on my podcast that I just recorded uh, on Saturday when uh, the bartender announced the, uh, the Green New Deal and she first laid it out and she had her conference. She was surrounded by white men. And, you know, why did all these white men want a photo op? Why did they want to be seen standing behind the bartender as she announced, I mean, the biggest piece of nonsense probably uh, in U.S. Uh, you know, history? The reason is because they're an endangered species now in the Democratic Party. They're white men. They are not one of the victims. They are the victimizers. They are the predators. They have been the beneficiary of white privilege. So they are worried. They're worried about getting defeated in a primary, just like uh, the bartender knocked off a, a, a 20-year uh, Democratic incumbent because he was a white man and he wasn't you know, socialist enough for the base. These guys are quivering in their boots. And what they want to do to try to fend off a potential primary challenge is they want to be seen as supporting the bartender. They want to, you know, get that credibility within that, you know, that part of the Democratic Party, you know, with the minorities and all the victims that, hey, look, I'm in favor of the Green New Deal. So don't judge me by the color of my skin. I mean, yeah, I know I'm a white guy, I'm male and I'm white, but I, but I get it. I'm hip. I'm with it. I'm progressive. Uh, you know, I, I feel your pain. I want to atone for all my sins. And I, I'm in favor of this Green New Deal. And so they want to be seen out there. I mean, I can't believe that these guys are actually dumb enough to believe this nonsense. They're just afraid politically that if they don't support it, that they're going to be, you know, out of Washington, D.C. And they're going to have to get real jobs. And that's what scares them to death, probably more than the Green New Deal, is the fact of actually having to work for a living and having to leave uh, you know, Washington. So they're getting behind this. Of course, they probably realize that it has no chance of ever becoming law, uh, but you know, they just have to be seen as supporting it uh, so that they can preserve their seats. But this has created a huge opportunity for the Republicans, for, for Mitch uh, McConnell, who I just read today, is actually going to make sure that the Green New Deal is actually brought to a vote uh, on the uh, on the Senate floor, and you would think, oh, this you know this is a, a brilliant political move, but it's not actually brilliant. It's really a no-brainer. I mean, this is exactly what the Republicans would want to do: is get these uh, Democratic senators on record of either being in favor of this or opposing it. And it's a it's a you know either way, it's a big win for the Republicans, and it's 
uh, a can't win for the Democrats. Now, of course, it would be even better if this went to a vote in the House because a lot of the, uh, you know, the House members are more vulnerable. Remember, you have to run for election every two years in the House of Representatives. And, you know, it's a lot easier for a challenger to knock off an incumbent uh, representative than it is a senator. Uh, you know, because it's it's a bigger undertaking. Normally, you need a bigger organization and more money because you're talking about a statewide election versus just uh, a small district. But Nancy Pelosi is certainly not dumb enough to ever allow the Green New Deal to come up to a vote in the House. Uh, but in the Senate, where it's controlled by the Republicans, I mean, this is great for the Republicans to bring this to a vote. I mean, they know it's not going to pass because there isn't a single Republican who is going to support it. So it's basically dead. But they certainly want to get this thing to the floor because it puts the Democrats in a very, very bad position because either they have to come out in favor of it in order to satisfy the left wing of their party, which may now be the base in order to align themselves with the bartender and not, you know, now be in the bartender's crosshairs as one of the traitors, as one of the bad guys. So they they have to vote for it in order to appease, you know, the bartender and, and, and everybody on the left. But if they vote for it, then they've got to deal with that in a general election uh, where they're going to lose the the middle. I mean, there's a lot of people who are independent who can go either way, Democrat or Republican. And if you know you're in favor of this nonsense, and you know I can imagine the campaign commercials uh, regarding anybody who votes in favor of the Green New Deal. I mean, this being uh, the essential issue in any kind of uh, general election. So. Nobody wants to vote for this, but nobody wants to, you know, vote against it. So nobody wants it to come up. But that's why the Republicans are going to make sure to put all the Democrats in a very, very difficult position uh, with respect to the Green New Deal. And, you know, I mentioned it before on you know the podcast that I did. Nobody wants to talk about how we're going to pay for the Green New Deal. I mean, sure, everybody wants to soak the rich, and that's going to play out well in the Democratic Party. But even the bartender admits that there's not enough money there, that this is such a big, ambitious plan that there is no way to pay for it simply by taxing the rich. And of course, when people ask her, how are we going to pay for it? Her standard response is, well, how do we pay for anything? How did we pay for the New Deal? How did we pay for World War II? Well, what I pointed out in my last podcast was the way we paid for that was massive tax hikes on the middle class and on the working poor. That's how we paid for it. I mean, the bartender doesn't know anything about American history, so she has no clue how we paid for it. She just looks at the fact that we had high taxes on the rich. And we did. I mean, I pointed out that we jacked taxes up on the rich uh, from 25%, which is where the top bracket was in 1929, all the way up to 92%. Uh, which was where it was in 1944 before they notched it back down to 91% in 1946 after the war was over. But that was a 268% increase in the top rate. But what I also pointed out was that the bottom rate went from 1.5% in 1929 up to 24% uh, in 1944. And, you know, it did go back down to 20% 
1946 when the war was over, but that's as low as it got. It stayed there until Jack Kennedy nudged it down a bit. But that represented a 1,433% increase in the bottom tax bracket. So the rates on the bottom moved up much, much faster than the rates on the top. So that's really who had to foot the bill for the increased cost of government as a result of the New Deal programs and fighting a war. It was middle-class taxpayers. It was lower-income taxpayers that really had to shoulder the a disproportionate share of the increase in the tax burden because that's where the money is. I mean, there's not that many rich people. I mean, that's why, again, I keep talking about the famous uh, response by Willie Sutton as to why he robs banks because that's where the, the money is. Well, why do you tax the middle class? Because that's where the money is. I mean, you could demagogue taxing the rich all you want, but ultimately there's only so much water that you can get out of that well. Uh, and if you really want bigger government and you want these big programs, then the only way to pay for it is by asking the middle class and you know, to cough up. But you know the bartender doesn't want to do that. So the only other avenue to finance this massive increase in government spending is uh, through the printing press, is through inflation. And of course, uh, the bartender seems to think that that's fine, right? She keeps talking about, hey, you know, we're going to get the Federal Reserve to finance this. And it's not really financing. The Federal Reserve doesn't finance. I mean, it just creates money out of thin air. She wants the Federal Reserve to monetize this. And of course, we're talking about massive inflation. You know, the national debt today just went to $22 trillion for the first time ever, $22 trillion. And not only is this a record debt, right, an amount of debt, but the records we're now setting is in how quickly the trillions are piling on. I think we went from 21 to $22 trillion in record time, and I think we're going to shatter that record in the move from 22 to $23 trillion. And in fact, I think every new trillion that we pile onto the national debt is going to come at record pace. We're going to keep increasing the record as to how quick we can add a trillion dollars to the national debt. I mean, probably sometime uh, after 2020, 2021, we're going to be adding a trillion dollars of debt every quarter uh, in this country. I mean, so, I mean, it's just going to be mind boggling. And that is even without the Green New Deal. I mean, the Green New Deal would just send it all off the charts, but even just on the current trajectory, based on how much debt we're going to pile on during the next recession, that's what's going to happen. But a um, an easy way uh, for the Democrats to try to pretend that they can finance this is by talking about the Fed and how the Fed is going to create all this money. And I think what we're going to start to see now within the Democratic Party is a rise in popularity of this bizarre theory. And several people have asked me to talk about it. Uh, I've gotten emails about it, so it's probably a good time to cover it. And this is called Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. Now, I don't know why they say it's modern, because there's nothing modern about this theory. And it's not even a theory. It's just crackpot nonsense that is never going to work. But there are people who have adopted this or signed on to this. I remember when I ran for Senate in 2010, this guy named Warren Mosler, who is one of the people who I guess is prominent in this MMT nonsense. And he was one of the candidates. He was an independent candidate uh, for Senate. And of course, he didn't win. But 
this is what he was preaching as you know as a you know uh, a, a panacea for our problems and you know the basis for uh, modern monetary theory or I'm just going to keep calling it MMT basically is that as long as a government can borrow in its own currency right it issues debt in the currency that its own central bank creates like the United States right we borrow in dollars and we create dollars out of thin air and so you know we can never run out of dollars and so therefore it doesn't matter how much money we borrow right because we can always pay it back as we just create money and therefore debt is not a problem right and so and obviously if you're a democrat and you're trying to promise massive government this mmt nonsense is going to be very appealing to you because it's a way to get something for nothing and of course there's an old expression in economics i've used it many times there is no such thing as a free lunch and that expression doesn't come with a little asterisk next to it that says of course unless you have a printing press and you can print money right printing money doesn't give you a free lunch you cannot print wealth Right? If printing money could create wealth, then Zimbabwe would be the richest country in the world. The fact that it's not, the fact that it's an unmitigated disaster, uh, despite the fact that they printed all this money, uh, should be a pretty good clue that money printing doesn't work. But that hasn't stopped the uh, MMT purveyors of this, uh, the equivalent of uh, you know economic witchcraft. Uh, you know, from peddling this nonsense. And I do believe, though, that a lot of Democrats are now going to start, you know, basically advocating it because it's really the only way to finance, using that word, uh, what they want to do. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about the nonsense theory behind the the MMT. The first one being that it doesn't matter how much debt you have as long as, uh, you know, you can print money to pay it off which is a bunch of nonsense. Now, it's true that if you borrow in your own currency, you technically don't have to default, right? You have countries that borrow, let's say, in currencies that they don't print, right? If you have Argentina, for example, that has to borrow in dollars because people don't want to lend them pesos, and now they have to borrow in dollars, well, if they can't get the dollars because they can't print them, they're going to have to default, but the question is, why do they have to borrow in dollars? I mean, they have their own currency. Why can't they just borrow in pesos? Well, what happens is when people lose confidence in the future purchasing power of the peso because they've already borrowed too much money, then the cost of borrowing in your local currency goes way up to the point that you'd rather you know, get a lower interest rate by borrowing in a foreign currency. Well, the same thing would eventually happen to any country that borrows in its own currency. Because, of course, countries start out borrowing in their own currency if they can, but when the creditors lose confidence in that currency, well, then they have to borrow in another currency. And so that is what would happen in the United States, and that will happen to the United States. If you take on too much debt and then you have to print a lot of money, people don't want to loan you money. You can't keep borrowing in that currency because the interest rates would be prohibitively high because the lenders are worried about inflation because inflation is another form of default. Remember that if you're going to continue to borrow money and print it to pay off your creditors, you are increasing the supply of that money. And the more money that exists, 
the less it's going to be worth. That's just classic supply and demand. And of course, the money doesn't have any intrinsic value, right? When you are talking about fiat money, just a piece of paper, um, the only it's all about supply and demand for that particular currency because there is no actual uh, use that the currency has. You can't do anything with it. Uh, it's it's just a question of do people want it as a medium of exchange? Do they want to use it as a store of value? There is no real world use. We're not on a gold standard anymore where you actually have uses for gold, right? I mean, if you just have a piece of paper, if you just have uh, you know fiat money, there's nothing that can actually be done with it. And so if they keep increasing the supply, the value is going to go down as a store of value, as a medium of exchange. And if people lose confidence in the future value, then the demand is going to collapse. And so that's what gives the currency value. It's not only the fact that the government is going to limit the supply, it's that there's demand. If the demand crashes, I mean, the demand could go to zero. Then it doesn't even matter what happens to supply. If nobody wants it, then it has no value. You know, you think about it in a very simple uh, environment. I mean, if you have castaways stranded on a desert island or tropical island, whatever, uh, paper money is not going to do anybody any good. I mean, nobody could do anything with with paper money so it's not going to have any value to the extent that you're you know you're confined to this island uh and and you know if you look at think about gilligan's island i mean the howls were there and they had you know millions and millions of dollars and i think they even bought a bunch of money with them but to the extent that they're never going to be rescued that money doesn't offer any value you, it doesn't provide any shelter it doesn't provide any food it doesn't provide anything in fact it doesn't matter how much uh, money is on that island uh if there's not if there's no goods then the money itself doesn't have any value i mean even things like cigarettes when the gi's were using cigarettes as as money i mean what ultimately gave them value was the fact that people smoked and people wanted a good cigarette but even if you didn't smoke yourself you could still use cigarettes as a medium of exchange because they represented a store of value because there was always somebody that smoked. Now, I suppose if a bunch of castaways uh, who were smokers were on an island, if everyone on Gillen's Island smoked, then you could use cigarettes as money as a medium of exchange because people would want the cigarettes uh, because they could always smoke them. But if you if no one on the island smokes, if you're you know everybody is a non-smoker, then it's not going to work as a, as a store of value because there's no value if nobody smokes. So it wouldn't end up being a, a, a medium of exchange either. But the problem with these uh, monetary, uh, these MMT theorists is they don't get the idea that money itself doesn't have any value, fiat money. It's simply facilitating the exchange of value that first you have to produce something and then it can be exchanged. So simply creating money doesn't create wealth. It simply creates claims on the wealth that already exists. And if you're going to pile on a massive amount of debt and you're going to finance it with a printing press, you are not creating wealth. You are actually destroying the value of wealth because you're creating more and more claims on what is ultimately going to be a diminishing stock of wealth. So trying to pay for the Green New Deal by creating money is simply going to cause the price of everything to go up. And so the cost, the price tag of the Green New Deal is just going to keep going up and up and up. So it's like a dog trying to chase its own tail. It's never going to catch it. You're never going to be able to finance anything 
by trying to print money. You're just going to destroy the value of your currency. And that's exactly what would happen. And the purveyors of this nonsense don't seem to get uh, the lack of intrinsic value in fiat currency and the danger that a fiat currency could lose the only thing that gives it value, which is confidence in its future scarcity. Well, you're not going to have a scarce currency if you're constantly monetizing government debt. But another big mistake that the uh, MMT crowd makes is their view of government debt as an asset to society, right? Like they say that when government creates debt, that that debt becomes an asset uh, of the economy because it's 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 an asset. You own it, uh, and it, you know you collect interest, right? You earn more dollars if you have you know U.S. government bonds, and now you're getting paid interest, right? That is an asset that's generating interest, so it's some kind of positive for the economy, which is a a, a ridiculous way to look at it. I mean, sure, it's an asset to the person who owns it, but it's not an asset to the country. Right. It's a liability. Right. The U.S. the government, the taxpayers owe the the money to the person who owns the bond. I mean, if you write yourself a check, you take your checkbook and you write out a check for ten thousand dollars. Is that check your asset? No, it's not. It's nothing. It's you know, you it's twenty thousand. It's ten thousand dollars that you owe to yourself. Now, if you give the check to a third party, well, then it's an asset to the third party, but it's a liability to you. So all these assets, all these government bonds that are held by individuals are assets to those individuals, but they're liabilities to the nation. It's money that is owed. Now, of course, some of these bonds are owned by non-Americans, so it's not even an asset of another American. But even to the extent that American citizens own a bond, it's money that one American citizen owes to another American citizen. And so you cannot create assets by creating liabilities. Now, people say, well, it doesn't matter. It's not a real liability because the government could just print money to pay it. Well, if it's not a real liability, it's not a real asset either. It's nothing. I mean, if the government just pays off its bonds and worthless money, then what kind of asset is worthless money? There's no asset there. So the idea that, oh, it doesn't matter how much debt we have because we're being enriched because we're, we're the government is dropping these assets on us. Again, if you can make a country rich, if a country got rich by its government going into debt, well, then, you know, in Zimbabwe would be the wealthiest place on earth. That's just not the case. You cannot borrow yourself into prosperity. You cannot print yourself into prosperity. You just print yourself into poverty. You print yourself into runaway inflation. You know, another major mistake that the MMT crowd, you know, makes is the idea that the Federal Reserve should just set interest rates, right? But after all, it's borrowing in its own country. It can just be a price setter. It can just fix interest rates wherever it wants. And if it needs interest rates to be low, it can set them low. If it needs interest rates to be high, it can set them high, right? Because it basically uh, just determines rates, right? Because, you know, it sets uh, um, monetary policy and it just decides what the rates are going to be as if this is a good thing. And it's not. Now, in the short run, I would agree that they have a lot of control over interest rates, right? They can set an interest rate, but that doesn't mean that there aren't any negative consequences that, you know, are going to result from the government, you know, setting a price, you know, because we, we know what the consequences are when they set uh, the price of anything, right? They create a shortage or they create a surplus. 
right? If they, let's say they set a price for gas, if they set the price too low, right? If they say gasoline or natural gas or whatever, we've seen this in the past. They created, helped create the energy crisis in the 1970s. But if they set a price that's too low, then you get too much demand and not enough supply. You get a shortage, right? Governments create shortages if they set a price that's, that's too low. What if you set a price that's too high, like the minimum wage, for example? Well, you get a surplus. You get a surplus of unskilled people who want to work, but you get a shortage of jobs, right? So you either get a surplus or a shortage depending on whether the government sets the price too low or sets the price too high. The way you get the market to clear, the way you get an equilibrium price is to allow the free market to discover the real price, not to have the government just set the price. Uh, and create all these distortions. So this is what happens when you have a central bank trying to uh, set the price, but it also destroys a very important part of the free market economy, and that is you know, savings and capital investment, because in a free market, interest rates are a function of savings. And if interest rates uh, move up a lot because there's an inadequate supply of savings, that's going to result in people saving more money to bring up the supply of savings. People are going to want to earn those higher rates, and it is going to you know, create a disincentive for people to go out and just borrow for things like consumption because the cost of doing that is going to be too high. So it's going to, you know, it's going to stop consumption. It's going to encourage savings, which is what an economy needs to invest in capital equipment to uh, make itself more productive and to grow standards of living over time. But if you have a central bank that just keeps interest rates low and tries to create savings out of thin air without anybody actually giving up any current consumption, if you're trying to finance both current consumption and investment, capital investment at the same time, it doesn't work. I mean, resources have to be freed up from consumption in order to be invested. You can't spend and save the same money. But when government tries to artificially replicate uh, the effects of savings so that we can have capital investment and production, we don't end up with that. We just end up with massive inflation. We end up with economic bubbles. We end up with projects that have begun that can never be completed because there really isn't enough resources in society to sustain them. You just have the central banks sending false economic signals that there are because interest rates are not low because of a change in time preferences, because consumers are refraining from consumption now and they're deferring it to the future and making their uh, savings available for capital investment, none of that is actually happening. They're just spending all their money and now the government is just adding uh, more uh, money to the economy uh, without anybody giving up any resources or freeing up any resources for capital investment. And so you just get massive inflation and bubbles. And this is the problem with believing that you know MMT is some kind of panacea that we can get around all that, that we have a shortcut uh, to economic prosperity that nobody has to underconsume, that nobody has to save, that we can have all the benefits of savings without saving. It's like saying you can have all the benefits of uh, exercise and eating healthy without actually doing that, right? You can go out and never exercise and stuff your face, and yet you're going to be healthy, right? And there's a lot of appeal to that. I mean, if you're overweight and you eat a lot of junk food and someone tells you, well, just keep doing that and you're, you know, you could still be healthy, there's a lot of appeal to a diet like that to the extent that people actually are dumb enough to believe it's going to work. 
Well, most people wouldn't believe it's going to work when it comes to nutrition or exercise, but people will believe it uh, when it comes to uh, economics or, or, or government that, hey, yeah, we could just print a bunch of money and uh, everything's going to be fine. And one of the reasons that you're going to see a lot of these MMT people so convinced that they're right is because of what happened with QE1 and QE2 and QE3. After all, we printed all of this money Right. And guys like me who are saying this is going to end in disaster. This is inflation. Prices are going to go up. We can have hyperinflation because none of that happened. Right. Because supposedly everything turned out fine, that we created this huge recovery, uh, that there is no price inflation. Right. Theoretically, or that is supposedly proved that, you know, people who believe that you know, printing money is a bad thing, that they were wrong. And this has really emboldened these uh, MMT guys uh, to really think that they, they're onto something. Like, after all, aha, you see, we were right. We printed all this money and everything is great, so we can print even more. I mean, if we created this much prosperity by going into debt by to $22 trillion, if we got all this growth by blown up the balance sheet to four and a half trillion. Imagine how much more economic prosperity we could create if we had a $10 trillion balance sheet, if we had a $20 trillion balance sheet. I mean, why stop at $22 trillion national debt? What about 50 trillion? What about a hundred trillion? So they can believe that all this is going to work because it all appears to have worked. But the fact that the Federal Reserve had to abandon the normalization of interest rates at two, two and a quarter percent. The fact that they're already backtracking on their attempts to shrink their balance sheet actually proves that it didn't work. And the only reason that so many people in MMT have been conned or deluded into thinking it worked is simply because the, a lot of the consequences, the adverse consequences that are sure to follow haven't hit yet because a lot of the inflation that was created manifests itself in rising stock prices and rising real estate prices and, and, and things like that. They, they don't appreciate the consequences. All of that uh, inflation is going to work its way into consumer goods. I mean, there's no question that that's going to happen. In fact, I'm reading an article today on Amazon is jacking up prices at Whole Foods and a lot of items are going up in prices and a lot of other companies are announcing their intentions to increase prices. This is all just getting started. We are still early in uh, this, uh, this wave, right? This is going to be an enormous wave of price increases that are going to be hitting Americans everywhere they shop. And it's going to continue even as the economy uh, slips into recession. Again, you know, the Keynesianists are always believe that if demand goes down, well, then inflation is going to turn down as well. And that just looks at one side of the pricing picture. It's not just demand, it's also supply. And is if the supply of goods is going down, which will be the case if the dollar falls and we can't import as much stuff, or if the cost of production goes up so much because of inflation that supply gets cut back, right? Well, then prices can be rising even if demand is falling if supply is falling faster than demand, which is generally going to happen in a slowing economy, which is, you know, putting out less output. There's less stuff being created. But of course, a lot of the demand then comes from money 
being created. If you have a weak economy and the result of that weak economy is an increase in government spending and an increase in deficits, which means the Federal Reserve is going to create more money, well, then that additional money is chasing a diminishing supply of goods. And in fact, one of the things uh, that the uh, you know the guys that believe that there's a trade-off and that you can't have inflation if the economy is weak, that a, a fall-off in demand is you know going to do the Fed's work, it's going to rein in inflation. They overlook the fact that historically, if you look around the world, the biggest examples of the highest amounts of inflation happen in weak economies. Economies with, you know, stagnant or contracting GDP in real terms, economies with high unemployment, countries that have had the worst episodes of inflation have also had high unemployment at the same time they've had high inflation. And the opposite is also true. If you look historically, look at countries that have had consistently the lowest uh, inflation rates over time, those countries have generally also had very low unemployment rates. So low unemployment and low inflation have gone hand in hand because low unemployment means that more people are working, more people are productive, and so more goods are being added to the supply, and which keeps prices down. And if you have stronger economies, governments are less likely to try to artificially stimulate those economies by printing money. So this idea that, oh, you know, as long as we have a recession, we don't have to worry about inflation completely belies all of the examples worldwide, including the examples that we have here in the United States of the 1970s, where we had um, rising inflation and a stagnating economy or recession, rising unemployment. We had all that at, the, at that time. We called it stagflation, and the Keynesians didn't even know what to make of it because as far as they were concerned, it wasn't even possible, yet there it was. And so they really didn't have a good explanation for something that should have been impossible in theory, but now they were ex experiencing it in reality. And the only reason that it was impossible in theory was because their theory was a bunch of nonsense, just like this whole theory of modern monetary theory is all a bunch of nonsense. It's as, it's as much nonsense as the Green New Deal which is you know, the perfect marriage between the two because you might as well go all in. So if you're going to support the Green New Deal, then you're going to sign on to this modern monetary nonsense. And I expect you to see you know, these bedfellows you know, jumping into bed together and they're all going to jump on this. Hey, we can have it all uh, because we're going to pay for it uh, by creating money. Uh, and we can do that. And it doesn't matter about how much we have to borrow because as long as we can borrow in our own currency, then we never have to worry about default which is true. You just have to worry about massive inflation, which is worse than default. And ultimately, as I said earlier in the podcast, once we get to the point where nobody wants to lend us dollars because nobody has any future confidence in what they're going to be worth, then the U.S. government is going to have to start borrowing in other currencies. There's no doubt in my mind that at some point in the future, if the U.S. government wants to borrow money that it can actually do something with, it's going to have to borrow in another currency or it's going to have to borrow in gold. The problem is I wouldn't trust the U.S. government, even if they promised to repay me in gold. Why would you believe them? After all, we already defaulted on that very promise in 1971. When people were loaning money to the U.S. government prior to 1971, the U.S. government was promising to repay in gold. Well, I mean, they were promising to repay in dollars, but the dollars were not only backed by gold, but you could get your gold just by preventing, presenting the dollars to the U.S. government, and they would give you your gold. The dollar was a warehouse receipt for gold. It was as good as gold. 
and and then you know we defaulted. So I wouldn't trust. I think if the U.S. government gets to the point where nobody wants dollars and we start borrowing in other currencies, I think we're going to have a hard time finding foreign lenders, even if we're borrowing in currencies that we can't print. Because then you do have the risk of default. And when you have a country that is so completely indebted, the risk of that default goes up. And especially if you're a foreigner, you know, because now defaulting on debts held by foreigners is extremely appealing because foreigners can't vote. And so, you know, why not screw the foreigners? Why not screw the non-voters to the extent that we could benefit voters? And those are probably going to be the ones that would be most likely to demand uh, foreign currency loans. Although, ultimately, Americans, too. Americans might not, not want to be repaid in dollars either. Americans could be demanding uh, that the loans be in foreign currencies or the loans be denominated in gold. But again, when we get to that point, there's going to be a lot of political risk associated with lending uh, to the United States, especially if we actually adopt some of this nonsense, which we very well might do. I mean, this may be a joke and Mitch McConnell could bring this thing to the floor and knowing that it's not going to get passed. But something like this, right? if the recession is as bad as I think it could be, and if it does start uh, before the 2020 election and we actually get a bunch of people elected on this kind of platform, if enough of the mainstream Democrats and Republicans, you know, lose and we actually get this nonsense and we start passing even even portions of this. Right. I mean, there's no way that everything on this Green New Deal is is ever going to get voted in, at least not to start. But a significant percentage of this could happen. I mean, a significant amount of increasing government government. Uh, you know, getting more involved in running the economy, in trying to create prosperity and to guarantee employment and guarantee all sorts of goodies. A lot of this stuff is probably going to happen because the politicians are going to vote for it. And then once it starts, it's very hard to unravel it. I mean, once that, you know, that 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 uh, boulder is rolling down the hill and it gathers more and more momentum, it's very hard to stop it. And usually if somebody tries, they end up getting, you know, bulldozed over uh, by the thing. So once this thing starts, the momentum is going to feed on itself. And a monetary crisis, a currency crisis is not going to be that far off, which is why I, I keep imploring people who are listening to this podcast to do something. And, you know, don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait for the Fed to actually go back to zero. Don't wait for QE4. Don't wait for the, the Democratic Socialists to win an election in 2021. I mean, if you wait that long, if you wait until 2021, then then do it. I mean, it'll be better than never doing it. But believe me, if we get to the point where this happens, it's not going to be that easy. I mean, it's not like the dollar is going to wait until then to start to fall. It's probably going to be significantly lower by the time it happens. Not that it's going to be as low as it's ultimately going to go because it's going to it's going to go much lower over time, but it will lose a lot of value between now and then. Gold should increase quite a bit between now and then. The gold stocks should increase a lot. So why wait? You know, don't wait until it's obvious to everybody what's going to happen because then the payoff is not nearly as high. You got to, you know, get in there while it's not a no-brainer. You got to get yourself positioned while you still have a bunch of people that haven't figured it out, that still think everything is great, that still respect the Fed. They still think that they know what they're doing, right? That everything is fine, that the U.S. economy is in great shape. By the time more and more people know the truth, and now the masses 
try to reposition themselves in a scramble to get out of U.S. assets, to get out of dollars, uh, to get into safer havens, well then, you know, the cost of doing that, the price to do that will be much higher. And in fact, the price will be so high that a lot of people will be afraid to pay it. And then they'll end up getting completely wiped out. So rather than having to make such a difficult choice, make the choice now. Well, to me, it's a no-brainer. 